Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I am your co-host Reggie Rucker and we are back with episode 9, our final episode of this season where we are highlighting frontline stories in the fight against monopoly power by talking with people from all over the country who are actively engaging in building more equitable, thriving local economies. Our last episode featured Kay Edie in rural Georgia talking about why she's fighting for universal broadband to improve health access in the rural South. On this closeout episode, we stay on the topic of health access and go out west to where California is proving how the public sector can get involved in the production of life-sustaining medicines so that folks don't have to buy their insulin from some guy on Craigslist to save their life. It sounds crazy. It's a real thing. You'll hear about this later in the episode. But to get into it, let me pass it to my co-host, who is the cream cheese icing on my carrot cake, Luke Gannon. What's up, Luke? Aw, thank you, Reggie. Now, if you listen to our last episode, you'll recall that Reggie and I don't have the same views on the best way to avoid getting sick, but we learned today that we share a love for good carrot cake. But anyway, this is the last episode of the season, and it's a very special one. Chris Noble, the Director of Organizing at Health Access, and Allison Hart, the Community Development Director at T1 International, join us on the show today, weaving us through their journeys of accessing life-saving medication in America. We are going to start at the beginning. Here's Chris. I was born in uh, Southern California. My parents moved pretty quickly to a town called Oceanside, which is in North County, San Diego in Southern California. Really great place to grow up, great public schools. My family, my two parents and my brother, I had a beagle growing up. We were all pretty close-knit, pretty classic Southern California 90s childhood. We really loved going up into the Sierras and seeing all the beauty that, that California has to offer. As Chris explored the Sierra with his family, Allison was living the life of a Midwesterner. I grew up in Indiana. Um, in a suburb of Indianapolis, so originally from the Midwest, and spent my first 18 years there. I think as a kid, I was a pretty introverted child. I enjoyed art and reading and playing with my one best friend who lived right across the street from me conveniently, spent a lot of summers swimming in her pool, and yeah, kind of had that Midwest suburban childhood. Chris also found himself spending a lot of time in the water, as you do in a town called Oceanside. He recalls his favorite job, other than the one he's doing now, being the time he spent as a lifeguard, even though it sometimes got dangerous. I remember being a lifeguard on the, the Marine base down there, Camp Pendleton. I remembered very clearly on every 4th of July, it was always a huge to-do. Obviously, on a Marine base, it was, it was a huge celebration. There was thousands, if not tens of thousands of people on our tiny mile and a half long beach. And we call it the Super Bowl of lifeguarding, where you are literally fishing people out of recurrence 10, 20 times a day. And I do remember one time, some folks were just out there on floaties, just having the time of their life, not realizing they're in a rip current. And I had to go swim after them, probably about a half mile off the beach. And I see tiny little bottles in their pocket. And I'm like, okay, what are we doing out here? Y'all are half a mile off the beach. We need to pull you back in. So just not a care in the world, floating off to sea. But that's the job of lifeguard. Got to go out there and save them. Life-threatening situations were nothing new to Chris at this point. Chris was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes early in his life. And it was then that he learned what it meant to be brave. I, I was diagnosed at five years old, which, you know, is kind of common for type 1 diabetes. But I remember at the time just kind of feeling, you know, like I almost had like a stomach bug for a while, but I was losing weight and my parents thought I had maybe a stomach flu and they took me in. They took me to a nearby hospital in Vista, which is right next to Oceanside. And the doctor took my blood test and realized that my blood sugar was about six times higher than it was supposed to be. And that those symptoms that I was showing was actually the precursor stage to a really severe condition called diabetic ketoacidosis. So it was very good that I got in at the time that I did, because that diabetes ketoacidosis or DKA can be life-threatening. 
I'm very fortunate, I think, in retrospect now to be diagnosed at such a young age because I had no idea what to expect. I was five years old. I didn't know that what was happening to me was a very different thing than what any other child would be going through. I thought, okay, well, this is just what I'm doing now. Like this is, you know, I don't feel good. I go to the hospital, I feel better. My parents, on the other hand, were very scared. On my mom's side of the family, there are a few folks with diabetes. So it does run on the maternal line. My dad had no idea what was going on. It was like very concerned for me, but wasn't showing it. Obviously kind of presenting, you know, a, a kind of confident dad who's trying to just be there for his son. But after the fact, he told me, you know, they were, they were terrified because I think my mom especially knew exactly what this would mean. And it would be a, it's a life sentence of having to manage this condition. So me being the happy-go-lucky five-year-old in San Diego, I, I'm like, okay, cool. Let's, let's go to the hospital, I guess. I don't know. Sure. You know, and that kind of started a week-long boot camp of really my beginning transition into being a full-on insulin-dependent diabetic. So nurses would come in, they'd teach me how to poke my blood or like poke my fingers to extract blood, to do blood sugar tests. Suddenly my parents are learning how to do insulin injections. So I got very close with my nurse at the hospital. We became kind of lifelong friends, honestly, because she was just really helpful and, and, and helped bring some confidence and reassurance to us. And she also connected me with other people in the community that have type 1 diabetes. From a young age, Allison became acquainted with the healthcare system as her mother, a nurse, played an influential role in her understanding. She swiftly recognized the indispensable role that nurses held in the lives of all of their patients. My mom was a pediatric nurse at Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis before my brother and I were born. She actually stopped working outside of the home when she had my brother. And so when I was growing up, she was a stay-at-home mom and then worked kind of as a preschool teacher and supporting in our classrooms as teacher aides and things like that to be close to us. She actually had left nursing at that point because it was really hard, I think, once she had kids to, she was working in the ICU and and dealt with a lot of children being very ill and, and passing away. And it was something that was really challenging always, but when she had her own kids and she also really always wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And then after we were older, she then returned to nursing, which I was really proud of her for. She went back to school, got recertified and went back in like an outpatient surgery center capacity. And I think even though she wasn't actively a nurse while I was young, I think that experience definitely influenced a lot of her perspectives and she had so many stories to share. And she talked a lot about the relationship that nurses have in the hospital system. They're really the angels and anyone who's been in the hospital knows that the person that's going to be with you on an hourly basis and the person that really knows what's going on in terms of your immediate care, like the person that's going to get to know you and help really in more of that emotional support capacity too. Like it's the nurses and they do so much amazing work. After she went back to work, she talked so much about how much it had changed as a profession and also like just the system she was operating in, where when she was a nurse in the 80s, she had a lot more of that autonomy and just relationship building with the patients. And then when she went back to nursing, that we we're in an era of like really big hospital systems. And as the practice that she worked for got acquired by a huge hospital network in Indiana while she was working there and just how, how impersonal it had started to feel. And it was so much about the bottom line and like just that, that emphasis on, on how much money you're saving in the interactions versus what's maybe best for the patient. And a lot of those themes that I think did influence other experiences once I started having them around, you know, why I advocate for insulin access just kind of corroborated what I was, what I was seeing in other places in our, in our healthcare systems. Allison is not diabetic herself, but her partner, Matthew, has type 1 diabetes. Meeting Matthew changed her life. I met Matthew, my partner, when we were in grad school together. We both went to Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia for painting, got our MFAs there. And before I knew him, I had never been, at least not, not, not that I knew, close to anybody who had type 1 diabetes. And so getting to know him really was my entry point into everything about it, both like the day-to-day -day of what it was to manage and also just the the insulin cost and the anxiety around what was happening. And so at the time that I met him, it was, I guess I'll say like a little bit earlier on, it, it continued. I like to say that our, our relationship maps to the insulin price crisis in the U.S. pretty well, because I feel like we were getting to know each other 
when it was becoming quite an issue and then it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so that escalation, I saw firsthand with how he was um, having to interact with insurance and with some of these issues. So the tipping point for me is a story that I've shared a, a lot with his permission, which he was diagnosed with type one when he was seven. And that was in 1985. So for him, when he was diagnosed, there was a lot of, I think, anxiety. And if we talked to his mom about this, about what it means to, to care for somebody when you're a child, especially just with this condition that you really, it's every day, all day, you're thinking about all of the decisions and, and just the implications, testing your blood sugar constantly, wanting to make sure that you're okay. There's a lot of that, right? But for her, when he was diagnosed, the part of the conversation that was not included was anything about cost. And when we hear from doctors now who are dealing with this, that's that's baked into when they talk to people getting diagnosed is this is going to be something you need to think about in terms of it's going to influence every other decision you make because you're going to need to be thinking about how expensive it, it can be. I have a chronic condition that requires daily, if not constant, checking in with myself. Type 1 diabetes is a condition where you're trying to balance your blood sugars. You're always on this roller coaster of your blood sugars going up and down and every input that you have into your body, whether food, water, exercise, sleep, stress, has some impact on you maintaining that level of homeostasis. And so diabetics are always checking in with themselves and saying, what do I need right now to get back to good? And I think being in that mindset all the time for the last 25 years plus years, because I was fortunate enough to live in a family, have a family and a healthcare system where those needs were met and I was able to be relatively healthy, I was also able to then think, okay, well, what systemic issues are there out there so that everyone can have the same ability to stay healthy and at this level of homeostasis? Why can't everyone feel this way? And what, what systems are in place that enable this health and what systems are in place that are hurtful or damaging to our ability to be healthy. And so that just came out of me just doing a self-assessment and saying, okay, well, if I'm good, like what isn't good about this? And what, what can we do to get a world where everyone can have the medicines that they need and the health infrastructure in place for us to thrive? These market failures that Chris is describing are not theoretical. In 2016, Allison and Matthew faced a life-threatening situation. Around 2016, Matthew went to our pharmacy to pick up his insulin prescription. He went two days early. He had had a bad case of the flu and ran through his insulin quicker than he usually would, which is very common when you have type one and you get ill, your blood sugars or any kind of, yeah, any kind of illness, it will usually make your blood sugars fluctuate widely. For him, they go really high, which means you have to take more insulin to keep them down. And so he went through it too much quicker than the amount that was on his prescription. And the pharmacist told him that because his insurance wouldn't cover it until the following Monday, this was on a Friday, he would need to come back on Monday, but he was going to be out that day of insulin, or he could pay the out-of-pocket cost for his pens, which at that time was $1,500. And so his insurance wouldn't cover it. It would have been about $80 if his insurance had would have covered it. And the thing about having type one is that you cannot go a weekend without taking your insulin because it's, it's something that everybody's body produces all the time who doesn't have diabetes. We all need insulin and it is regulating. It's a hormone that's regulating your body all the time. And you can go into diabetic ketoacidosis if you are not taking your insulin for two days and you will be very, very sick and you can even die. And so the option is pay, pay or die. And so the, it was a Friday. Matthew was trying to get a hold of his doctor to adjust his prescription because that was the pharmacist's recommendation, but you know, he couldn't get through to the office. His doctor was not available. The, the pharmacist wasn't able to help any further. They just said, call your doctor. So it's going back and forth for a few hours of phone tag with everybody. And then again, he was insured. He had his prescription. He had a primary healthcare provider. He'd been diagnosed with type one since 1985, but he was unable to get the insulin he needed because he couldn't afford that $1,500 as a surprise payment. Waiting two days wasn't an option. And he went to Craigslist. He found someone who was selling Novolog pens that their uncle no longer needed because they'd switched brands, met him in a gas station parking lot and paid him $20 and got the pens. So that experience, the level of like watching his fear and, and desperation, and we're sitting in the parking lot of the pharmacy 
and it's right there and knowing that yeah you're gonna take this I mean it's definitely a risk people do it every day getting getting insulin or supplies from from folks that are sharing and there is a risk too but just seeing that that, that was the option and that was hard It was not too long after this experience that Allison found T1 International and started volunteering. Shortly after, she was hired on full-time as an advocacy manager. When I started volunteering with T1 International, I was really surprised, though maybe shouldn't have been, to just find so many people having the same story or versions of it and, and just not realizing. I think we hear this so much from people before they are getting involved in the insulin problem movement or just connecting with other other folks there's there can be a feeling that like you're the only one that's experiencing it and it is really stressful there is a feeling of failure or just that you know it doesn't feel good to not be able to afford what you need to keep yourself well or to be in these situations where it's it's, it's demeaning that that your life is dependent on this again on these this the system that it's like you're right there and you can't you can't get what you need and and then to find other people that are experiencing it, of course, don't want other people to be experiencing it, but there was definitely that sense of we're not alone in this. And it's, you know, it's not just, it's not his fault. It's not something that he's doing. It's like, this is a system that has been created and so many people are are suffering because of it. And then also we have collective power, you know, we're coming together and we have an ability to make change together because we are all it's not, you know, one person saying, I'm having this experience and this is a problem. It's so many people that are running into these issues and that that brings a lot of power for changes. Chris emphasized that one of the most important parts of living with diabetes is having a community of people who have had similar experiences. One of the roles that Chris's nurse played, who we mentioned earlier, connected him to camps for children with diabetes. These played an instrumental role in not only learning about his condition, but empowering him to make systemic change. Now, after graduating from UC Berkeley, I was about 21, 22, thought I'd go back to camp. And at the end of the camp session, which let me just give some context, it was three months of camp where we're up in Big Bear Mountain. All the insulin is donated, so it's free to all of the camp attendees, but also the counselors that have type 1. And then I remember at the end of the summer session, it was in August, as we're wrapping up camp and doing our kind of camp-wide cleanup, all of the medical staff collected all of the donated medicines and insulins and kind of set them out in front of the medical tent. And the camp counselors that didn't have insurance at the time, of which there were a few, would actually go up and kind of collect whatever leftover donated medicines were left behind. Many of these people were my friends. I mean, these were my best friends the last three, three months. And suddenly they're filling backpacks full of insulin vials and pump supplies and syringes, knowing that they're not going to have camp until the December winter camp starts. And so they're trying to count, okay, well, I use this much insulin. This is how much is available. Is this close to expiring? Like trying to do that calculation as if you're gathering water to walk through the desert, right? But you're, you're filling up backpacks full of donated insulin to carry you through until winter session where you can get another large bolus of, of medical supplies to then hopefully carry you through to the summer. And that was their health insurance. And so I remember seeing that and being terrified of that. Like, this is the system that they have to work within because they can't afford health insurance. And that terrified me. It actually chilled me to my core that like, we are living in a world where that is what people have to resort to, to stay alive. And that I found that unacceptable. And so that led me into pivoting away from the clinical trial, hard research direction and really getting more into public health, health systems, and eventually pharmaceutical access and, and, and advocacy, which, which brings me, you know, to over 10 plus years of kind of working in this space. And whether it's at the state level, the federal level, even the international level, trying to understand what systematically needs to be improved to ensure that everyone everywhere has the medicines that they need to thrive. Chris and Allison's stories both demonstrate how difficult it is to access affordable insulin, sometimes impossible. This is because we have three major insulin manufacturers, Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, and Sanofi, that control 98% of the global insulin market. These companies 
are largely deciding the prices at whim for their insulins. You would hear some of them, their lobbyists say, at what the market will bear. And what that means to people, to everyday people, is what is the highest amount that we can be charged that won't kill us? Because if they kill us, then they lose a customer, but they still want to make as much money as possible off of these insulins. And so they will charge at what the market will bear. That's in the United States where we have absolutely no price controls. We're one of two countries in the world that don't have price controls. I think New Zealand is the other one. Every other country in the world has some form of price controls. So here, these companies are able to raise their prices as much as they want. Many times, those increases in prices are in lockstep. So you know, one company raises their prices, the other company matches it, and they are able to control the market and the prices that they set in that regard. So that obviously presents a problem, especially in a state like California, which I think we are a fairly unique, but not entirely unique example in that we're a gigantic state. There's tens of millions of people here anticipated around 3 million folks are insulin dependent. That's very rough estimates. Many of those folks are low income and they're on some of our state-based programs. So our Medicaid program called Medi-Cal is the state-based health insurance program for low income Californians. Many of those people are insulin dependent and completely dependent upon the state funding that insulin. So Governor Newsom comes into office in 2018 and suddenly realizes we're spending so much money on essential medicine that is priced ridiculously high, absurdly high, unacceptably high. And so him and leaders in our, in our legislature here at the state start looking into, okay, well, what can we do to bring down the cost of these generic medicines? And they start looking at what other states are doing. And this is also in partnership with my organization, Health Access California, who is a consumer health advocacy coalition. Many states are trying to enact price controls, so actually trying to bring down the price or establish lower prices to then be put onto these companies. Well, that's tried in many different instances, and these pharmaceutical companies are putting a firewall against those efforts. They're systematically blocking them. The lobbyists are coming out in full force saying, no, it is against the law for you to be regulating our prices as a private company. That's not gonna work. That's not happening. That's unconstitutional. And so I think, here in California, we, we saw a unique opportunity. We have 3 million people that are dependent upon insulin and just the public program alone. There's a market failure in these companies producing an insulin that's at cost, which we do know. There was a report published in BMJ, I think in 2016, 2017, that showed you could manufacture one vial of human insulin. A vial lasts two weeks to a month, depending upon your personal usage for as low as $5 for one vial, $5 to produce one vial of insulin. Same vial, when it came onto the market in 1996, exact same vial, Humalog, Novolog, it was about $25, $26 for that vial. That's, a, that's an okay amount, given that distribution and you know cold chain storage, all of those additional costs associated with getting the medicine to the actual consumer, $25, $26. It seems like these companies are trying to get the medicine out to folks. That exact same vial now, which is off patent because patents last 20 years, the patents expired in 2015, that exact same vial of insulin is now over $300. And that's for two weeks of medicine, remind you, <laughs> two weeks of medicine. And it's, you're not done. Like you have to take it every two weeks for the rest of your life, every day for the rest of your life. So what, what, what did the state realize? The state realized that, okay, well, we're spending a lot of money on purchasing this insulin at this absurdly high price. What if we just made our own? What if we just made our own insulin and the cost savings alone would pay for this program very well? It would pay for it almost instantaneously. And what other generic medicines can we potentially include that would not only save the state money, but also just help people and, and save people the burden of having to pay for these high-priced medications? And so that was the initial impetus behind the CalRx program. T1 International also played a hand in advocating for state-manufactured insulin in California knowing that this kind of momentum in legislation would eventually have a ripple effect on other states. It provides an opportunity to get outside of the system that exists more. When we talk about insurance and PBMs and the insulin manufacturers, a lot of the solutions that are being proposed or that will, will happen are fixing a piece of it, but the whole thing is so broken that it's hard to see the results for patients. 
I think what was really exciting about public manufacturing and something like a public private partnership either as is happening in California is the more that the public sector can be involved, the more the accountability is to citizens and taxpayers and not to shareholders and just getting more of that public involvement in these systems to have some of that accountability. Because what we're seeing is that when it's purely a privatized system, it's not working for people. And then the incentives are not helping people get what they need. The corporations are doing what they're meant to do. They're designed to make a profit, but it's healthcare and it's people's lives. And so we, we really believe patients should be put over profits. The California model of state-manufactured insulin is critical in changing the lives of people living with type 1. As a person with type 1, I, I do think this is a huge, huge development for people that are insulin dependent. This will ensure that not only an affordable and accessible insulin is out there and readily available to everyone in California, but that there will be really a market pressure for these other companies to have to then match a $35 competitor. So it's it's radically disruptive in in these other companies that are suddenly having to compete with a $30 vial. So that pressure alone is, is a mission accomplished. But also that the fact that there's a $30 option here at the state, that it will be sustainably and reliably available to folks. I mean, that, that brings, that, that quells my anxieties that I felt when I was at that camp and people were drastically filling backpacks full of insulin vials because now they can just go to their local CVS show that they have a doctor's note with a prescription and, you know, spend the $30. And if $30 is a barrier, I would like to see other additional assistance programs for people in that, in that scenario as well. In terms of insulin, this is a huge win. In terms of the broader kind of healthcare system, I certainly hope to see the CalRx program be brought to scale. I think public manufacturing is a fantastic workaround to a system that's incentives are distorted for the patient and for the consumer. For-profit medicine results in high prices and having people to pay what the market would bear, which many times is results in you having to make a decision between paying rent, buying groceries, and buying your medication. And that's just not a world where health is a human right and that our ability to access the healthcare that we need is guaranteed. Healthcare should be a guaranteed right for every person. Although the U.S. isn't there yet, Many states are looking toward other public options that will decrease the price of insulin and other life-saving drugs. We also have a lot of interest from other states. So Michigan already has public manufacturing of pharmaceuticals in their history. They did produce vaccines at one point. And also Massachusetts has a history and currently produces vaccines through Mass Biologics, which is affiliated with a university system now, but is fully a, a public entity. And so there's, a, there's precedent for the public manufacturing of pharmaceuticals in the United States. Here in Oregon, we have a public PBM called the RayRx, and actually Connecticut just signed on to, to be a part of that. So it's not manufacturing the product, but it's using the power of pu the public sector to negotiate drug prices as a public PBM. States working together to kind of harness their buying power and their the public power that they have to be negotiating on drug prices is really exciting to see. I hope both Chris and Allison's stories have moved you as much as they moved me. To keep learning and keep fighting for affordable health care, Allison and Chris shared a couple of book recommendations that inspire them and inform their work. Bad Pharma is a book that I think was really helpful for me. I, I think it inspired just because it's it, it emphasizes the need for patient voices and patient representation in all forms of of the process. One that we like to cite a lot on our team, which is not specific to the pharmaceutical industry or to this, but Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, just in general, I find to be a good one to return to for, for staying inspired when things feel tricky. There was, there was a book published this last year. This is kind of coming out of the COVID pandemic, but still lessons, lessons abound. It was by Emily Bass. It's called How to Stop a Plague. And it really, it's coming out of the HIV AIDS advocacy movement of ACT UP and how people power resulted in the radical dropping of life-saving HIV medication and using those similar lessons then to talk about 
COVID-19 and the advocacy around COVID-19 and, you know, what, what the next pandemic is going to call on all of us as everyday people to do to ensure that we have access to the life-saving medications that we need. So How to Stop a Plague by Emily Bass, I would highly recommend. Wow. I am truly blown away with our guests today. Thank you so much, Chris and Allison, for telling your stories and for fighting for health justice for you, your families, and communities across the nation. Stay tuned for the second half of this episode, where we circle all the way back to our very own Stacey Mitchell, where she explains how pharmaceutical benefit managers are driving up drug prices and the importance of public options. Today, I read, the kindest person in the room is often the smartest. And I immediately thought of my fabulous co-host, Reggie Rucker. Throwing it to you, Reggie. Well, this episode's already been really emotional and you're over here hitting me right in the feels, Luke. But thank you, I, I really appreciate it. So, you know, I was gonna say, we've been lucky this season to have episodes full of really smart, really kind, really dedicated people to come on and share their stories with you all. But it occurs to me, it's not luck. It's people all coming together, rising to the moment to do what's necessary for themselves, their families, and their communities. And those type of people tend to gravitate toward each other, find each other, and build really beautiful things together. And I'll say, I think that's why you found us. I think that's why you're listening to this podcast. Because you, too, are one of those really smart, really kind, really dedicated people looking to build something beautiful. And you feel seen here. We see you. And we know that there are others in your circle like you that would also feel connected to something really beautiful by listening to this podcast. So don't be stingy. Be kind. Share this episode with them. This is the last time you'll hear this ask for a couple of months while we go on summer break. So now's the time. Right now. Pause this episode. Send that share. Then come back for our interview with ILSR co-director Stacy Mitchell, who's going to talk about the most hidden yet powerful part of the healthcare system that's wreaking such havoc on folks like Chris and Allison and her partner, and how we move forward to make our families and communities healthier. Stick around. Thank you so much, Stacy, for joining us again. It's it's great to have you back to help us wrap up this season. So all of our listeners, they actually, they just heard from Chris Noble and Allison Hart and how they both have these very personal relationships to the issue of affordable and accessible life-saving drugs, insulin in their case, and how that informs their advocacy on the issue. So what we wanted to do with you today, because you've been doing a lot of work on looking at this issue of pharmacy benefit managers and how their place in the pharmaceutical industry impedes people like Chris and Allison from getting the medicines they need at a reasonable, affordable price. And I can speak for myself, and I think it's true of most people. They know their insurer, they know their medical provider, but this PBM, this pharmacy benefit manager, is kind of an unknown entity that's mixed up in all of this. And a little obscure, but very important. So can you walk us through, just give us like a crash course what a PBM is, how they operate in the market, such that they create like all these types of distortions in, in the marketplace. Yeah, happy to, and always nice to be on Building Local Power. Yeah, I mean, PBMs are, as you said, no one's ever heard of them, but they are the most powerful parts of the healthcare system that no one has ever heard of. They essentially sit, they sort of sit between your health insurance company drug manufacturers and the pharmacy where you get your prescriptions. And so health insurers contract with PBMs, large employers also contract with PBMs, Medicaid plans contract with PBMs. And what the PBMs do is ostensibly they negotiate with the drug manufacturers to get the pricing from the drug makers. And then they set up a list of approved drugs for that insurance plan based on those pricing deals. And then they manage that th- those prescription benefits on behalf of the insurer. And so when your pharmacist submits the claim for reimbursement, it goes to the PBM who decides how much the pharmacist gets reimbursed. And so basically manages all of your, your insurance benefits. 
that all sounds like normal and perhaps helpful and efficient in the system, but the reality of PBMs is something entirely different. So there are three PBMs that dominate the industry. They control more than 80% of all prescription, insured prescriptions in the country. The largest of them is CVS Health, which of course CVS owns Aetna, the big insurer. They are the largest retail pharmacy and they own the biggest PBM. The other two dominant players also own their own retail pharmacies, mail order pharmacies. And so all of this brings me to the fact that what is going on with PBMs is that they are self-dealing in all kinds of ways. So we see CVS decreasing reimbursement rates to independent pharmacies. If you use a local pharmacy, sometimes they're not even getting as much back as they paid for the drug because it's CVS who wants to put them out of business and take over the pharmacy market. So there's self-dealing going on that way. And then the so-called negotiations with the with the drug makers, as it turns out, are not necessarily the PBM trying to get the best deal on behalf of patients and insurers. Instead, the PBMs are doing these negotiations in secret where they're getting all kinds of kickbacks. And so the drug maker is like, hey, you, you put my drug, my version of insulin on your list as the one that's approved we're gonna hand you part of the cash that we just made overcharging. And so, and, and all of this is very opaque. We actually can't see into a lot of these transactions, but there's a ton of dirty dealing going on. So Stacy, can you talk about how these, these monopolistic entities, what the effect it has on consumers on the ground level, on people who need these medications? Yeah, I mean, in the case of the, of the market power of PBMs, you know, the two biggest effects is that, you know, we already have highly concentrated drug makers, a handful of these companies that make most of our major drugs. And that level of concentration gives them a lot of power to raise prices. And indeed, you know, we've seen Eli Lilly and these other companies, you know, just jacking up insulin prices and other drug prices. In the US, we pay something like two and a half times as much for our drugs as they pay for the same drugs in Canada and in other countries. And so you've already got this problem with the, with the drug makers, and then you layer on the PBMs, and this is like a you know, it's like a Batman and Robin like co-conspirator situation here where the PBMs are getting these kickbacks from the drug makers in exchange for putting these inflated drug prices on the list. And so one big effect for ordinary people is like outrageous drug prices and the inability to afford medications, you know, particularly for chronic illnesses like diabetes. And then the other big effect is that the PBMs are driving independent pharmacies out of the market. And so there are lots of communities that have now become pharmacy deserts, like there's no local pharmacy. And that is particularly rural communities and black and brown communities and cities, because those are neighborhoods and communities that have traditionally been served by independent pharmacies. And so it's been a real hardship for many regions of the country where, you know, for example, in parts of northern and down east Maine, where I live, there are no pharmacies. You might have to drive an hour, two hours to get your prescriptions. And the big chain, CVS, they're like, well, just use our mail order. But mail order is not a substitute. Like you sick today, you need antibiotics today. You, you can't wait a week for something to show up in the mail. There are all kinds of problems with, with mail order. It's not a substitution. So this lack of pharmacies and these extraordinary prices. A little while back, I heard you explain the state of North Dakota's relationship to the pharmaceutical industry at the Maine Center for Economic Policy's annual conference. You mentioned how North Dakota has banned new chains from coming into their state. Can you talk about this model and how it might be used at the national scale? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the it's a model that other states should adopt. It's the only state in the country that prohibits corporations from owning pharmacies. So all of the pharmacies in North Dakota are owned by local pharmacists. There, there are a couple of exceptions, some chains that were there that were grandfathered in. So there's a handful of chain-owned chain pharmacies, but for the, for the most part, it's only independent locally-owned pharmacies. The law was passed back in the 1960s, and there's some European countries and, and maybe some other countries around the world that, that have a similar ownership law. And the idea behind it is that you should not have healthcare decisions being made by people who aren't healthcare professionals. And so you don't want Walmart making decisions about the provision of pharmacy 
services, you want it to be in the hands of a pharmacist. That's the logic of the law. And what we see in North Dakota is that they have far better pharmacy service. There, there are many, many more pharmacies per capita in North Dakota than any other state. You find pharmacies even in the in the smallest towns, places that would, would in many other parts of the country not have a pharmacy at all. You'll find a pharmacy. And those pharmacies, especially in the very small communities, are the front lines of healthcare delivery. That's where people go for a lot of healthcare advice and guidance from a pharmacist because these are not places that have hospitals or urgent care centers and the, and the like. And we know that those pharmacies provide a much higher level of care than a chain pharmacy does. They do more free testing. They do much, spend much more time with, with patients and so on. And they have, North Dakota has among the lowest prescription drug prices in the country. And so it's a model that is in fact much cheaper because you don't have all of this self-dealing and, and, and price gouging that goes on everywhere else. One of the questions that that kind of raises is if independent pharmacies are so competitive in North Dakota, if they're just so demonstrably better and cheaper than the chains, why is it that we don't have, why are they declining in so many other parts of the country? And the, and the answer is the PBMs, right? It's, it's CVS cutting those reimbursement rates, driving pharmacies out of business. North Dakota, the pharmacies still have to engage with the PBMs because you know they have the same insurance as everybody else and that sort of thing. But because they're the only game in town, because CVS doesn't have pharmacies there, the independents actually have a level of, of leverage in those negotiations, not a hundred percent like North Dakota has also been passing some pharmacy, you know, some PBM regu regulatory measures and things like that. So it's not, it doesn't a hundred percent solve for it. We, they also need to do regulations, but the fact that the independents, because of the pharmacy ownership law, it really changes the dynamics in their dealings with the PBMs. Something else that's worth noting on this issue of PBMs is that the states really have been leading the way in passing laws around transparency, capping certain kinds of fees that the PBMs can charge. And there are a couple of states that have, and you know, this fits into the public options idea, states like Ohio and Kentucky, where they have canceled their contracts, their, their Medicaid contracts with the big PBMs and have then gone and done a contract with a much smaller PBM where it's on fair terms for both the state and for the patients and for the local pharmacies. And so states have a lot of opportunity in this market to insert themselves in a way that can benefit people and benefit local pharmacies. Again, we had this conversation with Chris and Allison earlier talking specifically about what they did in California to say, okay, we're going to create competition in the market by producing the drugs ourselves at the state at the state level. What what are your thoughts on that? Do you think CalRx is a good model to be effective at bringing down the cost of insulin or other drugs uh, that they may move into producing? Absolutely. I mean, when you have corporations that have made it absolutely clear that they have no interest in actually serving the purpose for which they were created and allowed to operate by our laws, then absolutely the public sector should step in and provide those goods and services and offer what is clearly very needed competition in this sector. If it weren't for the concentration and the collusion that we're seeing among all these companies, this wouldn't be a problem, but we don't have that kind of competition. And to me, we really need this two-pronged approach. We need to use regulations and antitrust laws to break up the concentration, to regulate the drug makers and the PBMs, to insist that they're held to the kind of standards that we all deserve. And then the second thing we need to do is to make those investments in areas where there's clearly a lack of competition. And this may be particularly relevant in the context of drugs like insulin, which are widely needed very low cost to make. You know, this is not something that should be a big profit center. And so in that sense, it's a really appropriate place for public investment and public provisioning and manufacturing of those drugs. I think it's also worth thinking about, you know, and, and indeed we have seen since, you know, CalRx began to get in motion together with some of the pressure that the Biden administration, particularly through the Federal Trade Commission, is now putting on PBMs and drug makers. Because of those actions by government, we've in fact seen Eli Lilly and others 
cut the prices of some of these drugs. So we are already benefiting from the effects of that of that public action. The other thing I, I wanted to say about this is that this is something that that is worth thinking about in the context of lots of areas of our economy, this idea of marrying anti-monopoly policy and regulation with public investment and public options. This notion that if you don't, if, if the market is not providing what we need, we can do it ourselves and introduce options that really work for people and that that compete with with the other companies and thereby sort of discipline them, right? Through the market, when we need to move our economy in a fundamentally or, or part of our economy in a fundamentally different direction and, and how the public sector can really help drive that transition. And then the last thing I would say is, and I think this speaks in some ways to the to the drug issue is areas where we have just allowed because of the mistakes on antitrust policy because of the lack lack of enforcement we have allowed a level of extreme concentration to arise in the last few decades and it is going to take multiple approaches to to rectify those problems and to bring back like a healthy ecology to these industries and you know we see this in the food sector in ag we see this in drugs i mean there are a number of different sectors that you all have been talking about on the show all season where we need some targeted public investments to help open up competition you know in addition to the anti-monopoly and antitrust actions that we need that's great so we're gonna we're getting to our final question normally our final question is about a book that you would recommend on this topic or something that inspires your work. But I think you've been here enough to where I think we've probably got a few books from you already. And since this is the last episode of the season, I wanted to see if we could get you to help us tie a bow on it. And it's helpful because you were on early on in the season and got to talk after AJ and then get to know AJ relatively well and get to know more about the North Tulsa community and Oasis Fresh Market and just his influence in that community and on sort of the broader issues that that we work on and care about. And so whether it's like the dollar store issues, the grocery store issues, And then how we now the last few episodes have been talking about broadband and pharmaceuticals. There's this through line that points to all the ways in which the issues that we care about and work on are important to people's health. There's, you know, going back to the dollar stores again and broadband. There's how, and again, you just mentioned it earlier here on the pharmacies and how, you know, these are particularly important in rural communities or communities of color. So there are these through lines that we noticed as we've moved throughout the season. And what's consistent also in all of these is the importance of just people on the ground doing really heroic work. So in saying all that, you know, the question to you is, how do you think about this relationship between like the truly inspiring, important work that individuals are doing in their communities and at the same time to not be reliant on or for communities to have to depend on these heroic figures to get basic needs like groceries or medication. Like how do you how do you square that circle and make sense of what we should be expecting of communities, but also what we should be expecting of our elected officials and federal agencies and things of that nature. I think what this season, I mean, the season was so powerful and what you and Luke have done with the podcast season and what we try to do with our work across ILSR is to connect the expertise and the lived experiences of people on the ground who are navigating things that are just not working very well. And often, as you said, are doing amazing innovative things in their communities and like charting a path for like here's what a different way of doing things looks like and here's how much better things can be and you know we saw that across this season whether it's aj's grocery store or the innovative things that the tenants unit union is doing in terms of thinking about new housing models and 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 so on and then connecting those to the big policy issues that effectively structure 
our economy and structure what's possible. And what I see right now is that in so many of these areas, you know, as, as you said, we have these superheroes who do amazing things, but we shouldn't need superheroes to be able to have groceries and to have affordable drugs and to have all the things that we need. And we're basically, we're creating an uphill fight for communities and for people, you know, trying to achieve these things because our big policy pieces are working against those local solutions, working in favor of consolidating corporate power, undermining the community solutions in so many different kinds of ways. And so what I think this season is really helping to do is to is to drive that expertise on the ground in the direction of changing things like antitrust policy, housing policy, drug policy, in ways that suddenly, I mean, if we did that, if we shifted antitrust and really went after concentrated power and opened up the opportunity for local grocery stores and community-based food systems and we adjusted our banking laws to supply those those new enterprises with the capital that they need suddenly we would have like you know the a thousand flowers blooming right we would have all of these folks who are working on food system act stuff at the local level be able to do things and really make change in a much easier way than than they can right now i mean i i thought this season was amazing at really doing that and it's something that we're really pushing throughout our work at ilsr Thank you so much, Stacey. This season has been a thrill to be a part of. And I think as much as anything, because it's reflective of the work that we do here. Yeah. Ha happy to be a part of it and be able to tell these stories with you, with Luke. And uh, yeah, appreciate everyone out there listening as well. Thank you so much, Stacey. My mind is already thinking about and anticipating what I know is going to is already shaping up to be a really exciting, terrific new season. But yeah, that's such a great tease. I, I should have been prepared to get that. Yep, you heard Stacy say it. This is the final episode of our season. But worries aside, next season, we are jumping in to some merger mysteries. Stay tuned. Thank you so much, Stacy, for this thought-provoking conversation and for tying such a perfect bow on this final episode. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to Building Local Power. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That is ilsr.org. If you like this episode, this season, please share it with your family, your friends, the random people that follow you on social media because you're such a great follow, everyone. And remember, all of your reviews and likes on your favorite streaming platform really does help with the fancy algorithms to get this podcast in front of more people. And your donations are essential to help us keep this podcast going and support the research and resources that we make available on our website for free. We truly welcome and appreciate it all. And one last thing, if you want to send us an email, let us know what you think of the show. Maybe share with us your favorite carrot cake recipe. I didn't know some people made them with walnuts. Some people don't use raisins, which feels kind of blasphemous. Anyways, you can do that by sending an email to blp at ilsr.org. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. The podcast is edited by Drew Birschbach and Luke Gannon. Our theme music for the season is composed by Andrew Frank. Thank you so much for listening to this season of Building Local Power.